As you're being seated, if you want to grab your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter number 21. Genesis chapter number 21. I don't know if you've uh, paid much attention to our order of service, uh, kind of a rework of the bulletin. We'd encourage you every morning as you come in to make sure you grab a a copy of that. Uh, Again, nothing special about this. Again, just an effort on our part to be as as structured and helpful as we can as the church comes uh, from all corners of uh, the Kansas City metro area to gather to worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to help us prepare our own hearts personally uh, and to guide us uh, through that. And uh, as you note there on your order of service, there's a number of different types of worship that we call out. Uh, Oftentimes our worship is um, defined solely by in our understanding, singing, right? We think of the worship service being that of the song service. But really, as we come and gather, there are multiple different types of worship that we can engage in. And so our hope and our prayer as we uh, structure and organize things decently in order, that it might draw your attention to those realities. That as we come, we need to be uh, understanding that there's a call to worship. That's why we're coming. So we start with that. Uh, and then ultimately, there's a time of worship through what? Confession. We worship God by desiring to be right with Him. And so to take a time as we gather corporately and individually to confess our sins before the Lord and to have our, our heart right before Him as we continue through that song service. And then um, we Worship through giving, uh, typically during a song, so we don't have that as a standalone, but I hope you're mindful that uh, your tithes and your offerings to the Lord certainly are an exercise in in worship back to the Lord, right? And uh, we commit our resources, our time, not just our money, ourselves. It's our spiritual worship, Romans 12, 1 and 2 talk about. And then Uh, The Word of God, Paul uh, admonishes uh, Timothy to commit himself to the public reading of Scripture. So that's why you might uh, see multiple passages of Scripture in our Sunday morning worship being read as standalone passages for us to not just have it as a tag on or uh, something extra that we do, but for that to be a substantial part of our Sunday morning gathering is the public reading of the Word of God to draw our attention to the word of truth. And so uh, we finish with the worship through the word, through the preaching of God's word. All of that activity is leading towards the public proclamation, the preaching of the word, that we have an opportunity to worship God through the response of that. As listeners, to be engaged in understanding what the word of God has for us as we gather. And then we finish finally with words of commission. This is Another text of Scripture to send us with, with hope and with courage and with strength to now act and apply what we have learned in our own lives. So just a reminder about our, our order of service. I hope that's been helpful to you. Uh, but as we look to now Genesis chapter number 21, I don't know about you, but I feel like this chapter has been a long time coming, right? Uh, as we have considered the promises that have been given by God to Abraham and Sarah, Uh, that was established by the covenant and given the sign of circumcision. And 
Abraham and Sarah trying to take things in their own hands and do things their own way and God reminding them and recalibrating their hearts and minds back to, no, it's not your way, it's my way, it's not Ishmael. It's going to be through a son that is given by Sarah and Abraham and his name will be Isaac. And here we are now finally in Genesis chapter number one. The title of our message this morning is A Promise Finally Fulfilled. And uh, can you empathize a bit with Abraham and Sarah this morning, and I don't know about you, but as I've been teaching and preaching and hearing the word, as, as Dave and Andy have been preaching as well, and it's like, come on, come on, Lord, let's, let's get there, right? Let's see this, this promise fulfilled, and, and so I'm excited to preach Genesis chapter number 21. I'm excited about what God has for us in his word. Let's just take a moment uh, and open in a word of prayer, ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, I pray that you would quiet my heart and my mind. I pray that you would be with this this time of the preaching, that you would guard uh, our attention, that your spirit would keep us from distraction, that we would um, literally and maybe figuratively, sit up and pay attention, to Father, to what you have for us as we understand that this is an inspired, inerrant word of God that is given to us to teach us, to reprove us, to rebuke us, to give us instruction in righteousness. And so, Father, I pray that you would do just that, that your word would be that hammer that breaks up the hard heart, and then it would be that fertile ground that Pastor Dave prayed about in his prayer, that we would be ready to receive the seed of your word. Father, I pray this morning that you would do the work that I cannot do, that your spirit would stir us up, change us to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. We ask all these things in your precious name, I pray. Amen. Isn't it disappointing when people don't keep their word? You ever been there before? Somebody said they were going to be somewhere. You showed up on time, prepared, and for whatever reason, they were a no-show. Maybe this was just a friendly cup of coffee to catch up with a friend. Maybe this was an associate at work who committed to give you content for a presentation that you were going to give that afternoon. And It's a few minutes before, and they didn't come through, and you're left, what, scrambling. Maybe this was uh, somebody in your own family circles said they would come through for you to do something, to be somewhere, to provide in a certain way, and they simply didn't keep their end of the bargain. They let you down. They didn't keep their word. That's hurtful, isn't it? It's disappointing. It's discouraging when people don't keep their word. And in this passage this morning, moving up to chapter 21, Abraham and Sarah may have been feeling some of those emotions and struggles. Questioning, is God truly going to come through with what he said he was going to do? For our own lives, when we are let down, when somebody doesn't keep their word, it can cause very deep disappointment. And even at times, it can cause bitterness towards that person. It can negatively impact that relationship, not just at that moment, 
but days and weeks and years into the future. Maybe it wasn't just one time you were let down, but maybe multiple times you put yourself out there in vulnerability. You trusted that person to come through and they simply let you down. If not properly dealt with, that type of disappointment and discouragement, what can it lead to? It can lead to a lack of transparency. We can hold back something in our relationships with others. It causes us not to be authentic and vulnerable in our relationships. And we establish many times what you might have called a protection mechanism in our relationships. What do we do? In our relationships, we keep everybody at kind of arm's length. We don't really let people in, so to speak, to expose where we're at and the struggle and the hurt and the difficulty that we may be going through. Why? Because we ourselves don't want to be hurt again. And our own struggle is made worse by that person not keeping their word. So what do we do? That protection mechanism is just leave everybody at arm's length. No transparency, no authenticity, no vulnerability. We settle for what? Shallow relationships. We might have a lot of them, but they're an inch deep. And so this morning, we're going to talk about how God, in his faithfulness, as the theme of our song service described, that he will never let us down in that way. When God speaks, we can take it to the bank that it is true. It is right and it is good and that he will always fulfill those promises. But the practical side of things is that on the human side of relationships is that there is legitimate disappointment. And it can and will impact how I relate to others in my life, but also it can impact how I relate my relationship with God. We take the attitude, if I want something to be done, I can't rely on other people, so I've just got to do it myself. Maybe if we can't trust others to follow through with what they said they will do, we can't trust God to keep his word either. Have you ever fallen into that trap before? Your emotions and your uncertainty with the circumstances that you're feeling caused you to doubt the goodness and the faithfulness of God? It can also cause us from keeping, or also cause us from not following Jesus. We fear making too radical a commitment lest we end up being hurt in the end. Or we end up taking matters into our own hands. Why? Because we have, have you ever heard this phrase, trust issues. This morning, we're going to challenge our hearts and our minds to remember this core truth that when God speaks, we can confidently trust that in his sovereignty, in his sovereignty, he will always come through. It might not always look like we anticipate it. But God in his character will always keep his promises. So that is the big idea of our text this morning. Because God is faithful to his covenant promises, he will make a way in the face of impossible circumstances. Again, we look at chapter 21 and our big idea is this, because God is faithful. He will not fail us like our earthly relationships. He will not fail us like that uh, fly-by-night co-worker who didn't come through for you. He won't fail you like your neighbor that didn't show up for coffee. He won't fail you like that earthly father who abandoned you or who hurt you. Because God is faithful to keep his covenant promises, he will make a way in the face of impossible circumstances. So this morning, 
we're just going to look at four simple observations, I'm going to call them, from the text. There's not going to be a really cute outline or alliteration this morning. We're just going to allow the text to guide us. And we're going to look at these four simple observations. Observation number one is this. God is faithful to fulfill his covenant promises on his terms and not ours. God is faithful to fulfill his covenant promises on his terms and not ours. Let's look at Genesis chapter number 21, verses 1 and 2. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to him. Again, a reminder, almost three decades have now passed. Year after year, the waiting continues to weigh heavy on both Abraham and Sarah. They've struggled with the questions of, is God really going to come through? The promise has been questioned. That promise has even been mocked at times, both from Sarah and Abraham. And now they're faced right here in Genesis chapter number 21 with God revealing his faithfulness to fulfill his covenant promises. But what's the nuance here? That fulfillment is on his terms and not our own. This is something not that only do we see in chapter 21, but we've been learning it for a number of chapters right now. God is going to fulfill his promises, but it's on his terms. That's something that we have a hard time wrestling with, right? And why is that? Because we struggle with receiving and accepting the true sovereignty of God. That's his authority, his rule and influence in our life on his perfect timing and in his perfect way and not our, our own. We attempt to say, God, I believe this would be best. God, surely you didn't mean for us to wait this long, so let me help you. Have we seen that in Genesis? God, my wisdom, my understanding, my sovereignty over my own life is better. Now, friends, we know we would never verbalize that. That's heresy, right? That's not true doctrine. That's not a biblical mindset. That's not walking in the Spirit. But friends, we might never verbalize that with our mouth, but don't we feel that in our hearts? Don't we sometimes raise that fist to God, maybe not literally, but in our hearts saying, God, where are you? God, have you not promised? God, have you forgotten your son and your daughter? Have you wrestled with that before? The nuance of God's fulfilled promises is this, that it's on His terms and His timing and His way and not our own. So again, a quick reminder, Abraham and Sarah tried to circumvent God's sovereignty by doing what? Taking the real promise that was given to them by God and they tried to fulfill that in their own way. In their own way, what did it do? It complicated the circumstances, not just at that moment all the way back in chapter 16, but that complication certainly carries into our context even here in chapter 21. And not only back in chapter 16, and not only right here in chapter 21, but those complicated circumstances will continue to be lived out for the rest of the history of mankind because Abraham and Sarah attempted to circumvent 
God's sovereignty. Through the lineage of Ishmael, there will be conflict and toil and struggle. But friends, as we take a step back, do you see the character of God in all of these circumstances? What do we see about God? Do you not see Him patiently loving? Do you not see God in this passage graciously leading Abraham and Sarah along the way despite themselves? Despite them usurping their own authority and their own sovereignty over these circumstances, what does God do? He continues to take their hand. And He continues to recalibrate their focus and their attention back on His promises. And reminding them that they can only be fulfilled in His perfect way. Patiently loving, graciously leading, tenderly guiding both Abraham and Sarah, really, again, in spite of themselves. So a couple additional observations in these first couple verses. Under this first main observation, God is always at the center of His fulfilled promises. God is always at the center of His fulfilled promises. Do you see it in verse number 1? Who visited Sarah? The Lord. Who did this thing to Sarah? It was the Lord. This is a reminder, friends, that the Lord has initiated all of this. Abraham didn't deserve this covenant. He didn't earn these promises. Certainly God didn't owe Abraham anything. But what does he continue to do time and time again to lavish blessing upon Abraham and Sarah despite themselves? The covenant, the promise of a son, it was 100% of God's doing. It was the Lord. Why? Because God is always at the center of His fulfilled promises. Does God use us? Absolutely, He does. Does God even desire to use us? He does. Absolutely. Does God find pleasure in working in through His in and through His people? He certainly does. But friends, this is a truth and a reality that we have to come to grips with. It's never about us. The Word of God is not about us. It's not about our salvation experience. It's not about our glory. It's not about us avoiding hell. It's not about us being better or more morally correct in our understanding of things. God's Word, His Bible, everything that we have been given is about who? It's about Himself. It's about His glory. It's about His name. It's about His fame in this world and His renown, not our own. Ephesians 2 reminds us of these realities in verses number 8 and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His, what? Workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then jumping down to verse 18, Paul goes on to say, For through Him we have both access and one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens 
with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together, get this, into a dwelling place for whom? God. Let me say that again. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Anything that God accomplishes in and through his people is never about us. It's always about his glory. So not only is God always at the center of his fulfilled promises, but our second subpoint is this. And it's simply a definitive and somewhat of a blanket statement, but it's true nonetheless. God always keeps his promises. I just want to say that, right? I've said that multiple times, but I want to make it a core final point. God always keeps his promises. Do you believe that this morning, friends? I don't, I don't know all of your stories. I don't know everything that you're going through right now. But I know it's easy to forget this reality in the midst of struggle and difficulty and turmoil and loss, loss of health, loss of gainful employment, loss of some stability in your relationships within the home, outside the home. It is easy to forget that God always keeps his promises. This is one of the great tactics that Satan will use. He will cause us to forget the joy of our salvation. And when we forget the joy of our salvation, we forget the goodness of God. When we forget the goodness of God, we forget that He is faithful to fulfill His covenant promises. So let's look at another phrase in verse number one. The Lord visited Sarah as He had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as He had what? Promised. As he had said and as he had promised. These are beautiful phrases that draw our attention back, that recalibrate our weary faith back to this reality that we can trust, we can hope, we can follow hard after God. Why? Because he always keeps his promises. Just as he had said, just as he had promises. This is the God that we serve. This is the character of the one that has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Friends, we opened up this morning talking about being let down, stood up, or potentially even ignored. We can rest assured that when God declares a promise, he will always keep it. Maybe you came to worship this morning a bit weary of the waiting as Abraham and Sarah have been through the last few chapters. Maybe you're weary of the struggle, whatever your struggle personally may be. You're anxious for deliverance and relief from the circumstances you're facing. You're anxious to see God come through as He has promised. But yet, maybe God's answer to you at this moment, as your prayers are going up, God's answer is what? More waiting. More trials. More tribulation. 
more difficulty. But friends, we can have hope in this, that Jesus is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. That greater is He than is us than He that is in the world. And in the midst of those trials, we can count it all joy. Because God is there. And He's faithful. It may not be on our timing. It may not be in our way. It may not be in our understanding. But God will always be there for us. He'll always keep His promises. Friends, we've got to leave this place knowing and hearing and believing that truth. Why? Why is it so crucial? Why is it mission critical that you and me, that we understand as we leave this place that we have to believe that reality? Why? Because the world that we live in is looking for what? They're looking for hope. They're looking for fulfillment and joy and peace in all the wrong places. Friends, we have the only peace to offer. We have the only true and everlasting joy. And it's in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so if we can offer that type of hope, the hope that says God always keeps His promises, that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that God has raised Him from the dead, that we will be saved, do we believe that God will keep His promises in that? That's a beautiful reality. And friends, we have to be fully convinced in our mind. Fully assured that God's character will do nothing less but come through and provide and meet the demands of these promises. I'm reminded of the Scriptures in Galatians chapter 6 that urge us to not grow weary of doing good. You Remember that one? Don't grow weary in doing good for in due season... For in due season, we don't know when that season is. We don't know if multiple seasons will pass. But what are we called to do to not grow weary? For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. Keep trusting, friends. Christ followers, keep hoping, keep following, because God, again, will always Keep his promises. Do we get that this morning? I might say it a couple more times. I'm sorry. God will always keep his promises. Psalm 33, 20 through 22 is a great reminder of these realities. Can you resonate with the psalmist here? Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let Your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in You. His steadfast love is there in the waiting. His steadfast love is there in the trial. His steadfast love is there in the difficulty. Our first main observation was that God is faithful to fulfill His covenant promises on His terms and not ours. Secondly, we see that Abraham and Sarah respond to God's faithfulness with obedience and reverence. Abraham and Sarah respond to God's faithfulness with obedience and reverence. Verse 
Verse number two, and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to him. Verse three, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Verse four, and Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. This, this work of Sarah's barrenness being removed and her conceiving this child Isaac and giving birth to this promised Son, between Abraham and Sarah, this is nothing short of a miracle directly from the hand of God. And as we looked back to chapter 20, again, we reminded ourselves God upheld the integrity of Sarah, even in the midst of these challenging circumstances with King Abimelech. Maintained her integrity and her innocence so that no one could take away from this beauty and the the majesty of this miracle directly from the hand of God. The biology of the age and the circumstances around this, they don't make sense, do they? The circumstances of Abraham being old of age, 100 years old, it doesn't make sense, but... Here's a reminder for us this morning, and this reminder could not be more relevant as we consider the state of society that we are in, this postmodern understanding of truth, that it's all relative, defined by the natural laws that we have constructed. The reminder is this, God is not bound. God is not bound by our construct of the natural law. Why, or maybe even how, you might ask. Because God is not natural, He is supernatural. God is above the laws of nature. This is a miracle. And this is the challenge that the secular mind would have with the Word of God. It's reconciling the supernatural that we see in the Word of God. Because friends, you can't deny the reality that Abraham lived And that he existed. He is a historically verified human being. We can't deny the reality that Sarah lived and breathed and walked on this earth. No one can take away from the reality that Isaac, as well, was born of Abraham and Sarah. And lived and breathed and walked on this earth. So friends, how do we reconcile this reality that Isaac is born of Abraham and Sarah? We have to remind ourselves of this reality that God is not bound by the natural law. He is a supernatural God and He works miracles and He will continue to work miracles. Why? Because He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you believe that God still works miracles? Do you believe that God still works miracles in and through us in our day? Friends, we have to believe that this is the God, the God of the universe, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, is a supernatural God. 
Maybe it was a terminal diagnosis that was healed that the doctors just can't explain. Maybe a tumor shrunk in an area of the brain that wasn't operable. Maybe a soul was saved. All of those are what? Miracles. We have to believe in this post-modern world that we live in. We have to be convinced. We have to believe God is not bound by our logic and our understanding of Him. Why? Because He is Creator and we are His creation. He's a supernatural God. This is something that logic or rhetoric cannot explain. But I know this with certainty that what we are reading on the pages of these, of these scriptures, these individuals, these places, these points of geography, these events, these battles are not just characters in some fanciful story, but they are history. They're real and verifiable. And this is the beauty of Scripture. Not only so Abraham and Sarah respond to God's faithfulness with obedience and reverence. Our first subpoint under that main observation is this: Abraham responds with careful obedience. Abraham responds to this work of the Lord, this miracle, with careful obedience. We see this in verses three through five. What is Abraham's response? Look at me, verse number four. He says this: And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old. Here's our key phrase. As God had commanded him. As God had commanded him. There's something significant about those words. I believe there's something significant for us, even in a point of application for us to consider in the life of Abraham in those four or five words. How are we responding to the faithfulness of God in our present circumstances today? Whether we are in the valley of uncertainty and waiting or the mountaintop of fulfilled promises and blessings, we are called to what? Obey. As God has commanded. As I consider the timeless principle in those words, and we bridge that gap of time, isn't that really the essence of being a Christian? The initial call to the disciples from Christ was to do what? To follow me. It required a radical abandonment of really everything. They left their homes, their livelihood, their comforts, and professions to answer the Messiah's call in their life to follow me. The Great Commission in Matthew 28. We as disciples of Christ are commanded to go and do what? Make more disciples. And as we do that, as they receive Christ, we're to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then what's the next thing we're supposed to do? Teaching them everything that I have commanded you. Even to the end of the age, amen. So in essence, the entire Christian life it's not just about avoiding hell. It's about growing in our knowledge of Him so that you can live more like Him, all for the purpose of maximizing His glory in and through your life. 
We're to teach them all that I have commanded you, Jesus says. The Christian life is all about understanding what God has commanded and doing it. Being a Christian, that little Christ following in the footsteps of Jesus is attempting by God's grace and by the power of His Spirit to model the life of Christ. Abraham, in this chapter 21, he sees these fulfilled promises and what his response? He obeyed. He obeyed immediately and completely just as God had commanded. How does Sarah respond? Sarah responds with with the testimony of redemption in verses 6 through 7. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Now, laughter is an activity that Sarah has been known for in previous chapters. Not in a positive sense, right? We think all the way back a few chapters ago, Sarah laughs in mockery of the promises of God on her life. She disdains the word of the Lord and she laughs back in response to the truth and the promises that she's been given. What does God do here? God takes the cynical and doubting laughter of Sarah in previous chapters and he now replaces it with a laughter of praise and worship. The former laughter was focused on whom? Herself. Her circumstances, her barrenness, her logic, her understanding, the reality that she was living. It was focused on herself, her desires, her inadequacies. This latter laughter, the latter in chapter number 21, it was marked by God's faithfulness, God's working, and literally God's miracle. So I love that God redeems her laughter. He changes the nature and the content of Sarah's laughter. And it's a laughter of excitement. It's a a laughter of of praise and, and almost disbelief that God has done this work. She's laughing in thankfulness. This is beautiful. All of this results in what? Look at the end of verse number seven. Last phrase, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. At this point, she's focused on God. Her response is indicative of that. But we read on in verse number eight, it says this, and the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. We see, after verse 8 and verse number 9, we see a shift in focus that results in a very different response from both Abraham and Sarah. This brings us to our third observation. Abraham and Sarah respond to Ishmael's mockery with disdain and contempt. Abraham and Sarah respond to Ishmael's mockery with disdain and contempt. Verse number 9 says, But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham laughing. Verse number 10. So she said to Abraham, cast out the slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son, Isaac. Wow, how the tables have turned. 
how Sarah's disposition and demeanor have shifted so rapidly. Verse number six, her focus seems to be on the one who has done this great work. And Sarah said, God has made laughter of for me. God was the source of this laughter in verse number six. But as we read on to verse number nine, Sarah now saw the son of Hagar laughing. And how does she respond? Cast the slave woman with her son Ishmael, for they shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Sarah allows her focus to shift back on herself, which results in what? This indignation towards Hagar and Ishmael. And Abraham is now stuck in this very difficult predicament again. That's why you don't have multiple wives. We now see a shift in Abraham's focus as well, right? What was once total and immediate obedience, as the Lord had commanded, it now shifts to uncertainty and delay. His focus shifts off God and onto himself. Let's look at verse number 12. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Excuse me, I meant to read verse number 11 as well. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. On account of his son. Goes on to read verse number 14. So Abraham, what did he do? He rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it in her, on her shoulder, excuse me, along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. This brings us to our fourth and final observation this morning. God is faithful to fulfill his promises based on his wisdom and good pleasure. God is faithful to fulfill his promises based on his wisdom and good pleasure. Abraham wrestles with this reality of this request that Sarah has given him to do what? To get rid of Hagar and Ishmael, to get them out of the camp. It's often understood that uh, this was a common practice, that uh, really Sarah's concern, and there must have been something in the interaction or the relationship between Abraham and Ishmael, where Sarah potentially felt that Isaac's birthright may have been at risk. So there was a common practice that if a man had a, an heir to um, a slave or a servant in that day, that in, in order they could offer their freedom in exchange for their relinquishing of any rights to property or, or birthrights. So this is essentially what Sarah is asking Abraham to consider for them to essentially give up all their rights and prerogatives of being a part of Abraham's family um, and simply to be done in exchange for their, for their freedom. They're no longer going to be known as a slave. They're no longer going to be defined by this. But in exchange, what are they giving up? Everything that they could gain as a result of being in the household of, of Abraham. So Sarah is driving a hard bargain, and Abraham is worried. It's displeasing to him. So God comes to him and redirects Abraham's focus off of himself and his desires 
and back onto God's plan, which is fulfilled in the covenant promise through Isaac and not Ishmael. This is what God directs his attention back to those realities. But can we empathize with, with Abraham just a moment? And can we have a what in the world is Sarah thinking moment as we consider all the way back in chapter 16 that Sarah is the one that came up with this idea in the first place. She's the one that created these circumstances. She's the one that offered Hagar, her servant, to Abraham to give Abraham a son. And now she acts out. This isn't the first time this has happened towards Hagar. She's going to do it once and for all. Now she has her son, and she's going to be done with Hagar. She's going to be done with Ishmael. This final point is this. We see God's sovereignty all through this. God is faithful to fulfill his promises based on his wisdom and good pleasure. These final verses here. Let's read them. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. Verse 17, and God heard the voice of whom? The boy. It's an interesting observation. Didn't hear the, the cry of Hagar as she lifted up her voice and cried, but God heard the voice of, of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy. Where he is. Verse 18, Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Verse 19, Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up and lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. This interaction, the circumstances here, I'll be honest with you, don't make a lot of earthly sense to me, right? Understanding who Ishmael is and ultimately what he will represent in, in the history of mankind. Um, really, the, the, the father of the, the, the Muslim religion will be birthed out of his lineage and will be at war and, and strife and, and turmoil with the nation of Israel uh, really until the Lord comes, right? Uh, that's, that's promised, actually. And so we have these circumstances where God hears the voice of Ishmael and he seems to offer a blessing on Ishmael and Hagar. But why? Why does he offer this blessing? Why does he seem to extend this measure of grace toward Ishmael? God is faithful to fulfill his promises based on his wisdom and good pleasure. I'll be honest with you, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me why, why God would, would do this. There's a seeming, from my perspective, a tension here. You have Isaac and you have the covenant promise now fulfilled. You have Hagar and Ishmael now being brought out of the household of Abraham. And God promises to do what? Make 
a great nation of Ishmael. So what do we see in this final section? We see grace. Grace is everywhere in the circumstances of this interaction with Hagar and Ishmael. What is grace? Grace is often understood, again, as a manner that only reflects back to God's gift of salvation to undeserving sinners. But if you'll remember with me back in chapter number 17, we talked about a grace that was even promised there for Ishmael, that God shows His grace in a non-salvific sense, right? Meaning, this isn't talking about salvation between God and man. God offers grace in this world. He offers blessing. It rains on the just and the unjust. He gives gifts to undeserving sinners that do not result in their salvation. These gifts are given by His, what we call, common grace. This is what we see in relation to Ishmael and his offspring. They will be blessed. They will prosper. However, this covenant relationship is only established through the line of Abraham and Isaac. This is incredible. God's common grace, his blessing. Let me ask you a question of application as we consider this common grace blessing towards unbelievers. Do we see this in our day? We do. Don't you often see potentially unbelievers prospering in this world? Status, popularity, money, possessions, not a care seemingly in the world. Do you struggle with that sometimes? I, I, I do. <laughs> I struggle with that. God, why do they seem to have much and your children have little? Because God is faithful to fulfill His, fulfill his promises based on His wisdom and good pleasure. We know that his blessing on our life and our relationship with him is not always defined by what material possessions. The amount of zeros in our bank account with other numbers in front of it. It's not defined by our title on our business card. It's not defined by the square feet of our home, square footage of our home. Right? It's not defined by any of that. It's defined by what a relationship with God that gives us hope for all eternity. And that hope is rooted in this reality that what? He is faithful to fulfill His covenant promises. That He will always keep His promises. That although our life in this world and during our lifetime may be filled with struggle and turmoil and loss and difficulty, proverbial thorns in our side, things that we have to bear, Weights that, that seem insurmountable. God is faithful and just. Shall a man gain the whole world but lose his soul? This is what the temporary blessing of the lost, unbelieving individuals looks like. They have their reward where? Here. Our reward is not of earthly nature, it is heavenly. 
So what does Paul tell us to do in Colossians chapter number three? If you then be risen with Christ, do what? Seek the things that are above, not the things that are on this earth. I wonder this morning as we consider application for our own life, are we living for the glory of God? Are we running hard after his word and his promises? Are we believing? Are we trusting? Are we hoping? Not in our own understanding, not in our own manipulation of circumstances, not in our own uh, way that we can accelerate progress to receive some temporal earthly blessing that we think is really the end destination or result, but rather, friends, let us deny ourselves. Let us take up our cross and follow Jesus daily. This is where true peace, true hope can truly be found. So this morning we have a promise that is finally fulfilled. We'll finish out Genesis chapter number 21 next week as we consider additional progress with these circumstances that Abraham is making difficult for himself, but we can rest assured that God did keep his promise that Isaac is born and he is a good God. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this text of scripture and for the truths that we can anchor our heart and our mind on this morning. I pray that you would be glorified in and through the preaching of your word. And Father, we know that the work is not done because there is more glory, Father, for you to gain as a result of your people humbly and by your spirit in a grace-enabled way, obeying and applying the truths that have been revealed to us this morning. So Father, I pray now as we break up into our children's time and our application and implementation time, I pray that you truly would be glorified. We ask these things in your precious name we pray, amen.